Luke tells us that following the temptation of Jesus, the Lord returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of Him went out through all the surrounding region. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Who was Jesus at this moment? From our vantage point, He is Christ, God's anointed, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. But who was Jesus from the vantage point of the people in these synagogues? In Nazareth, the town where He grew up, they responded to His teaching with, Is this not Joseph's son? And they nearly killed him for what he taught. Why would the synagogue allow a carpenter's son to read and teach publicly? The synagogue system, though not revealed under the old law, appears to be a divinely ordained system. Under the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, the Jews were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world, what's commonly referred to as the diaspora. While its precise beginnings are difficult to point out, synagogues began in this time period, and by the first century, they stretched all throughout the Mediterranean world. In my estimation, we can be confident that the system was inspired and endorsed by God. Otherwise, Jesus and his disciples would not have made use of them when preaching the gospel. Synagogues were different from the temple. Synagogues were organized for the express purpose of reading and teaching on the Sabbath day. Philo of Alexandria remarked, What then did Moses do regarding this seventh day? He commanded them to assemble together in the same place, to sit with one another with order and reverence, to listen to the laws, so that no one should be ignorant of anything in them. And in fact, they do always assemble together and meet with each other, meet with each another, the majority mostly in silence, except when it is appropriate to offer assent to what is being read. And then one of the priests present or one of the elders reads the sacred laws to them and interprets each of them separately till the evening. Father was describing what we have come to call the synagogue system and its type of worship. Unlike the temple where the primary focus was upon sacrifice and offering, The synagogues scattered all over the ancient world focused on reading and teaching. Because the synagogue was fundamentally different from the temple, it was governed by different traditions and rules. Jesus was neither a priest nor was he a rabbi. But as a male member in good standing, he was permitted to read and teach. In backgrounds of earlier Christianity, Everett Ferguson writes, Any male could read the scriptures. Any male could translate, preach, or lead the prayers in the Shema. No special class had a monopoly on the conduct of the service. Thus, participation in local synagogue services was a feature of Christ's ministry, as it is mentioned eight times in the gospel accounts. Paul, during his ministry, modeled himself after Jesus. When he entered a new town, Paul would first visit the local synagogue, and he was granted the same privilege. One example comes from the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. After reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Paul and Barnabas were unknown to the synagogue. 
And yet the ruler offered them the opportunity to exhort the congregation. Andrew McGowan, an Anglican priest and dean of the Berkeley School of Divinity, says the following about the examples of Jesus and Paul. In both cases, a public reading was undertaken, apparently of both law and prophets. In both cases, interpretation takes place, but with a certain spontaneity and openness to participation. Preaching here was not formalized. was not a formalized univocal activity led by one uninterrupted orator, but a conversation in which those regarded as learned and articulate or those who held a particular status in the community were preeminent. Jewish homiletics at this time need not be imagined as normally a sort of one-sided rhetorical performance. Here's a few things that we can draw, a few conclusions we can draw from these examples. Jesus, Paul, and those who traveled with Paul were neither priests nor were they rabbis. But as male members of the Jewish community, they were entitled to read and expound upon the scriptures. Both Everett Ferguson and Andrew McGowan independently verify that preaching or teaching or participation in any other part of the synagogue's proceedings was not the special province of any one person. These observations are significant because we will see the early church adopt the same model. As we transition to the church, the picture becomes comes into greater focus. After the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, the early disciples learned and leaned on the apostles. Jesus had commissioned these 12 men to preach the gospel, baptize those who believe, and then teach believers all things that he had taught the 12. The apostles faithfully kept the Lord's command. After preaching Christ risen from the dead and baptizing some 3,000 people, the apostles taught the church. Luke tells us the early disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The apostles' doctrine represents the teachings of the apostles thus showing that the apostles kept the command of Jesus by imparting his teachings to the church. As Acts chapters 3 through 5 unfolds, we see the apostles remaining the focal point. They are preaching the gospel, they are teaching the church, they're giving witness to the word through miracles, and overseeing the church's early acts of benevolence. But prompted by a moment of crisis, we see the church beginning to assume greater responsibilities in the kingdom. Seven men full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit are appointed by the apostles to ensure all widows of the church receive the help they need. Stephen, one of those seven, performed signs and wonders and proclaimed Christ risen from the dead, the law fulfilled and warned of the judgment to come. When Stephen is martyred, the apostles remain in Jerusalem while the rest of the church scatters preaching the word as they travel. Philip makes his way to Samaria, and through miraculous signs and preaching, he converts many Samaritans to Christ. He also converts a eunuch who is on his way home to the court of Candace, queen of Ethiopia. Philip eventually lands in Caesarea, where he presumably spends the next couple of decades preaching the word. 
So beginning in Acts chapter 6 and moving on, we see the church assuming more and more responsibilities. And we especially see this portrayed in the church of Antioch, Antioch, Syria. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, Luke tells us that some brothers from Cyprus and Cyrene preached to the Greek-speaking Jews in Antioch, and they converted a great number. Word of these conversions reaches the church in Jerusalem, so they send Barnabas up to investigate. Barnabas arrives in Antioch, finds the reports are true. He encourages the brethren. The church continues to grow. Barnabas travels over to Tarsus. He grabs Saul. He brings brings him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, Saul and Barnabas assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Who were Saul and Barnabas? Well, we know Saul was an apostle. Barnabas, though he's never called an evangelist, was doing the work of an evangelist. He's proclaiming the gospel and teaching the disciples. What's notable, though, is these two men spent an entire year with this young church, and in that time they taught a lot of people. But by Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we see there were more teachers than just Saul and Barnabas. Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean were also prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Prophets were men who could speak by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Teachers were men who had the ability to expound or explain the word of God to others. Although Saul and Barnabas had spent years at this point in Antioch, the Holy Spirit makes it clear they were no longer needed. Other men could remain behind to ensure that the church in Antioch was educated and edified. What we see in these early examples of the church is that more than one man was gifted with the ability to educate the church. While the apostles took center stage at the beginning, the disciples assumed greater and greater responsibility as time wore on. Antioch was started by disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene who were converted at Pentecost. With the help of Saul and Barnabas, they followed the pattern of the Great Commission. They preached, they converted, they taught. But the Holy Spirit said an apostle and an evangelist were no longer needed in Antioch because the congregation had matured to the point where many men were capable of building up the congregation. Thus, the emerging picture in the book of Acts is that the men of the church, like the men of the synagogue, shared the responsibility to publicly edify the church. 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 sharpens our focus even more. It's worth bearing in mind that what Paul taught the Corinthians in the book of 1 Corinthians was consistent with what he taught in other places. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17, he tells Timothy, pardon me, he tells the Corinthians that Timothy is on his way and he will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul's instructions about husbands and wives, marriage and divorce were consistently taught everywhere. Now, but God, as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk and so I ordain in all the churches. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 17. And the instructions he gave to Corinth about the collection had been taught elsewhere. 
Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. It's true that Corinth faced a unique set of challenges. But what Paul taught in this letter was the same thing as he taught elsewhere. In chapter 12, he addresses the use of spiritual gifts. When an apostle laid hands on a disciple, the Holy Spirit would give that disciple a miraculous gift. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 highlights the diversity of spiritual gifts in the body, noting that though the gifts of the Spirit are manifold, they are given by one Spirit who binds us together into one body in Jesus Christ. And because we are a single body, no one member is greater than the other. If we perceive a member to be weaker or less honorable, we should follow the example of God by giving them greater honor. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Though the gifts are diverse, the church should be unified by their care and concern for one another. All of this sets up his exhortation at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. The more excellent way is chapter 13. The missing ingredient in Corinth was love for one another. One could speak in tongues or prophesy or have a miraculous measure of faith, but without love, these gifts, though impressive, serve no useful purpose. After he talks about love, we get into 1 Corinthians 14. The first 25 verses of that chapter compare and contrast two gifts, the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. It appears based on some of the things that Paul says in that chapter that the Corinthians took great pride in the gift of speaking in tongues. But Paul reframes their perspective by pointing out the limitations of tongue speaking. Prophecy, in contrast, is a superior gift because one is able to speak and teach by inspiration without the limitations of speaking in a tongue. This brings us to 1 Corinthians 14.26. Paul asks the question, How is it then, brethren, Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. What was happening when Corinth gathered together as a church? Each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Now, some people interpret that verse as an endorsement of the concept that everyone should participate in the public assembly of the church. See, God expects everyone to be prepared to contribute to the meeting of the church. Now, certainly, participation is implied in that verse, but that's not its entire meaning. Because Paul follows up this description with an admonition. Let all things be done for edification, implying that what was happening in Corinth was not edifying. 
For this reason, Paul regulates the speech of those who speak in tongues, those who prophesy, and of our sisters in the church. With each group, Paul follows a pattern, and I'm going to write these up here on the board. Follows a very distinct pattern with each group. To each of these groups, Paul identifies the group, he states the rule for their speech, he explores a what-if scenario, and he offers a justification for the rule. In verses 27 and 28, he addresses those who speak in tongues. The rule is one speaker should speak at a time with one interpreter. He places a limit of two to three tongue speakers at the most. If there is no interpreter, then tongue speakers are to remain silent. His reason for the rule is no one can understand a foreign language without an interpreter. Therefore, a tongue speaker who has no interpreter should just speak to himself. Verse 28. In verses 29 through 33, he addresses the prophets. The rule is two or three prophets are to speak one by one, and the others are to judge. If those who are not prophesying receive a revelation, they must keep silence. They can control what they speak. As he says in verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Paul then justifies this rule in verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. All members of the church gathering together with a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation created a disorderly, confusing atmosphere. The dysfunctional nature of their assembly is why Paul imposes these restrictions on those who could speak when the church assembled for worship. But let's not overlook salient point. In an age when the Holy Spirit inspired men to speak as his oracles, multiple men were expected to participate in the teaching of the church. J.W. McGarvey, a highly respected 19th century Church of Christ preacher, made this observation. It is true that the instructions contained in 1 Corinthians 14 are mostly given to persons possessed of spiritual gifts. But if, when men possessed of such gifts were in the church, it was not best that any one of them should ordinarily occupy the entire time, why should we think it best to reverse the rule in the absence of such gifts? If the rule was true for men moved by the Holy Spirit, it would certainly be true for the rest of us. 
Paul taught the Corinthians and every other church to, to share the responsibility of public edification among the brethren. Historian Everett Ferguson agrees. He writes, according to Paul's description of the church as a body in 1 Corinthians 12, it is clear that every member was a minister or servant of the whole body. The evidence shows that any Christian man with the requisite ability and knowledge would speak in the public assembly and teach the gospel to others. Although bishops and evangelists were the most prominent servants of the word, the preliminary observations on all Christians as ministers should not be forgotten. Uninspired teachers had a place in the permanent work of the church. Thus the pattern first established by the synagogue and repeated in the example of Antioch is reiterated in Corinth. The preaching and teaching of the church was a responsibility shared by a group of gifted men. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 through 16 we learn more about the Lord's model for his church. In Ephesians 4.11, we read that among the gifts Christ gave to the church, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Although the word is used in other ways in the New Testament, the apostles were those 13 men chosen by Christ for a special mission. Prophets, as I stated earlier, were men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, men like Mark, Luke, James, and Jude. The apostles and prophets form part of the church's foundation through their writings preserved by the providence of God. But in addition to these two roles, Christ has also given to the church teachers, men who have the ability to expound or to explain the word of God to others. He has given the church evangelists, those who preach the gospel to the lost and teach converts the doctrine of Jesus Christ. He has also given to the church pastors or shepherds, a term that's used interchangeably with the office of elder or bishop. They oversee local congregations. Christ gave these offices to the church to accomplish a specific objective. They were to equip the saints. That is their mission, to equip the saints. Equip can also be translated as perfect or furnish. It comes from a Greek word that's very flexible in its meaning. It can be used in a number of different contexts. The medical field used it to describe setting a broken limb or a dislocated joint. In politics, it described bringing together opposing political sides. We could use that right now, couldn't we? Among fishermen, it was used for mending nets. This was a word that was wide in its usage. But they all share a common thread. This word means putting a thing into the, yeah, putting a thing into a condition it ought to be. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and elders help us become what we ought to be in the body of Christ. They help us to realize our full potential. Jesus ordains these offices to equip saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verse number 12. Ministry and edification are terms that encompass many of the good works we were created to perform. Remember, 
from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ministry simply means service, serving others, either physically or spiritually, looking after their needs. Edify means to build up, to pursue and promote the well-being of another. These roles were ordained by Christ to help the saints become who they ought to be as ministers and edifiers. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy, as an evangelist, was to teach, in turn, teach others, and so on and so forth in perpetuity. These roles equip the saints for ministry and edification. And Paul sets a benchmark for their work. He says in verse 13, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. These are aspirational objectives. None of us will ever reach what Paul sets out in verse 13, but we are to pursue them. Because a body that's been placed in the condition it ought to be works toward unity in faith, in knowledge, and Christ-likeness. So the diversity of gifts that are distributed by the Lord and exercised by equipped saints fashions a body united in belief and understanding and in Christ-likeness. And what this produces is stability. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. A body of Christ with members in the condition they ought to be, ministering and edifying as they should, will not be shaken. It will not be shaken. Unlike the Athenians, such a body will not occupy its time with telling or hearing something new. They remember the words of the writer of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with strange and various doctrines. Rather, the body of Christ is stabilized by speaking the truth in love. Love was the missing ingredient in Corinth, and it should not be missing in our speech to one another. Loving, truthful speech promotes maturity, it promotes unity, it promotes stability. Speaking the truth in love causes the body to grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Remember, Jesus does not give us elders and evangelists to minister to or edify the church. Rather, he commands them to equip the church to handle its own ministering and edification. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Every member has a share in the body of Christ. Every member supplies strength. And when every part participates, the body is joined and knit together. It grows and is built up. So in Ephesians 4, Paul paints a beautiful picture of the church. 
The church is an organism, a body that depends on every part to contribute. God placed in the church these roles that help us become all that we aspire to be. These roles do not minister and edify on our behalf. Rather, they are placed here to equip everyone to participate in the upbuilding of the body of Christ. In Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, Paul discusses how we should exercise the gifts that the Lord has given us. He says, for as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Like Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, highlights how the diversity of gifts builds unity within the body. Ephesians 4.16, we are knit together by what every joint supplies. 1 Corinthians 12.12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Every member has their own function, has their own share within the body of Christ. And this builds unity. Furthermore, Jesus intends for these gifts to be put to work. Let us use them, Paul says in Romans 12.6. Every part must do its share, Ephesians 4.16. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. These gifts are not to be buried in the ground or set on the shelf. They are to be put to work in the kingdom of heaven. In Romans 12, 6 through 8, Paul itemizes some of the gifts given by the Lord. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering in proportion to our faith. Pardon me, I just read the same line twice. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. What's interesting about this list is only one item in that list, prophecy, is a miraculous gift. The rest are non-miraculous, but they are vital gifts in the body of Christ. Also of note in this list are gifts which have nothing to do with what happens behind this pulpit. Because of the human tendency to gravitate toward a single preacher or a single pastor or a single teacher. I feel compelled to focus much of my time on this particular aspect of the church's worship. But without question, what I've been talking about this morning applies to all areas of Christian ministry. Those who excel in giving, those who excel in leading, Those who excel in mercy are just as vital to the building up of the body of Christ. Taken as a whole, this is the prevailing message we get from the New Testament. We are God's workmanship. We all have talents and gifts from God to contribute to the strength of a congregation. Thus, the burden of ministry does not fall upon the shoulders of one or a few but it falls upon the shoulders of all of us. 
To shirk our place in the body of Christ is to deny the very purpose for which God created us in Christ Jesus. 